Amen. If you will, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Uh, We're going to begin reading in verse 13 and be reading through verse 35. Again, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, and we'll begin in just a moment in verse 13. We often hear, if we're paying attention to the culture, watching the popular talk shows, something along this line. Tell me your truth. What is your truth? And what they mean is, tell me how you understand who you are and what defines your world. Increasingly, because of the rise of what some would call the autonomous self, a self that is self-created, self-identifying, self-sustaining, self-defining, increasingly we come to a subjective or a relativistic understanding of truth. One of the things that we emphasize at this church, and I think in any true church, is the the necessity and the the power of the truth. And a simple definition of the truth is this. Truth conforms to reality. Truth conforms to to that which is real, whether reality presently in this time frame or historically true and real. But for something to be true, it has to correspond to the objective reality. There's a one-to-one correspondence, uh, so, so to speak. And so our world is increasingly blurring the lines between reality and what we might call a subjective understanding of who we are and what our purpose is and what our destiny is. Now, we can go back many, many years even to uh, the presidency of one Bill Clinton in which he began to wrangle over the meaning of words. See, words are simply symbols that represent reality. And so, if we're to present a true gospel, we use words that what? Represent a real truth, a real reality. And if you'll remember famously, well, it depends on what is, is. Well, now that has set off an avalanche of redefining uh, the meanings of words and the meanings of reality. And therefore, the challenge of communicating real truth, true truth, necessary truth, becomes increasingly difficult. We live in a a world in which it's stated over and over again that although reality is I am a man, I am a male, I can choose to be a woman. We live in a world where they can say that that which 
dwells that which is conceived by the very power of God in the womb of a woman is not a human being. It's something that I can choose to dispose of on a whim. It is a world in which a woman that is appointed to one of the highest offices in the United States of America can publicly declare, even though she was appointed because she is a woman, that she doesn't know what a woman is. We've lost sight of what is real, what is true. And so you can see that that creates a context, a difficult context when we say that Jesus Christ is the crucified and resurrected Savior and Lord. Folks, that is true. Why? Not because I said it, but because it corresponds to that which has happened, that which is happening in that He is Lord, ruling over all, and He is the one that will return one day and bring all things to their appointed end. Folks, that is true. It has always been true. It will always be true. It will stand the test of fire. And no matter what the culture tries to do in terms of bending reality, therefore distorting truth, we must continue to speak that which is true. Namely, we echo what those first witnesses said. That which defined, that which represented, that which communicated this reality. He's not here. Why? Because He has risen. So let's take a second look this morning at the accounts of the resurrection, a second episode from this gospel writer Luke, as we continue to think about that very historical and absolutely amply testified to day in which our Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. Please read with me. Verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, 
It is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is now it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures and they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon and then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread pray with me this morning father once again we thank you for the truth the truth that we can rely upon, uh, the truth that does conform to the reality of that which has actually happened. We thank you that our Lord did come. He did suffer. He did die. He was raised from the dead. He did ascend to where he now rules and reigns, and one day he shall return. That is not my truth. That is your truth, which is absolute truth. Lord, may we hear your word may the power of your spirit illuminate our minds give us understanding to that which we read and that which we hear and we ask these things in jesus name amen as the gospel writer luke moves moves toward the conclusion uh, of his gospel he gives to us four of the eleven post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are four accounts that detail the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's very interesting, just to kind of some quick things that I was doing this week uh, in study. And, and I've noted a number of times the buts that are used throughout the Bible. And when we use a but as a conjunction, we, we are using it to, to, straw, to demonstrate or to show or to highlight or to, to, to sort of to, uh, announce that I'm about to contrast two things. That, that, that there is something that I, that, that these things are true, and what I'm about to say may not seem to be true, but they are. And so we see that a number of times just in this, these clo this closing chapter. The, the but. And then the, the and, that, that this story runs together from the empty tomb to the ascension of our 
Lord. And just, just words, again, just quick surveys looking at the beginning of the paragraphs. Uh, he begins chapter 24 with, with but, and then he continues in verse 28 with so, and 36, as, and then, and then and. In other words, there's, a, there's kind of a thread of continuity that runs through this until he wants there to be a bit of a disjunction or a disjoining to show contrast. In other words, it's one story, and it fits together to give us a very clear and a very accurate testimony to our Lord Jesus upon his, uh, his resurrection. Now, I'll be fair that as, as I read these accounts through all four of the Gospels, they strike me somewhere between whimsical and uh, enigmatic and, and surreal. Uh, I mean, there, there's just a strangeness to it. But what is going on here is the gospel writer is putting two things together that are incongruent. Uh, that, that, that is, he's juxtaposing the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and then putting right on top of it what? The life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things, death and life don't really go together. You, 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 you don't put an and between talking about death and then moving into life. But here we see it. And so kind of by its very nature, it's just a, a strange tale of some strange happenings. Jesus shows up. And then he leaves. Now, you know, I, I may get one of those Job rebukes here one day from our Lord. Who are you to even think about those things, knothead? That's kind of the, the Somerville translation of what God said to Job. As he kind of tried to analyze what was going on. But I think, had I been our Lord and I'd been raised from the dead, I would have gone back and kicked some booties. There'd been a few... few Y'all liked that, didn't you? See how, see, I'm growing, I'm growing, okay? But I'd have gone back, and I don't know who I'd have started with. Pharisees, Sadducees, oh yeah, they, they would just be in for a royal kicking. Then I've worked my way up to Herod, to Pilate. I'd had to have a little talk with those 11 guys that abandoned me. I don't know if I'd just slipped in and slipped out. But who am I? But who am I? To question the hows and the whens and the whys of how our Lord chooses to reveal the reality of the accomplishment of his life and his death. And so what we have is simply the testimony. And contrary to former presidents, it is what it is. And that is truth. That is a statement of the reality. The reality whereby what? Our salvation was accomplished. So let's begin to look, beginning... In verse 13, we see that Jesus is going to uh, join company uh, with, uh, with, with, 
with two travelers that are that are that are leaving uh, Jerusalem, and and this is in literature and in drama. Sometimes you talk about red herrings. In other words, it's it's kind of clues that aren't really clues that lead you astray. If you read mystery novels and so forth, and this isn't quite a red herring, but it's kind of a a false start to the end because Luke has made a big deal beginning in chapter nine when we're told that Jesus did what? See if y'all remember your Luke. We've only spent two or three years of your life on it, so you know, hopefully you're going to remember some of it. But in chapter 9, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. From chapter 9 through where we are today, it's been largely the story of the journey to Jerusalem. And then we know what happened in Jerusalem. He was betrayed. He was tried. He was condemned. He was executed. All of those things are absolutely true. And now what? They're leaving Jerusalem, which signals what? End of the story. I mean, we had great hope. We were excited that this had potential. It ended in the execution of our Lord. Let's go home. Let's go back to our farms, our families, our fishing, whatever it is, but let's go home. And so, that is kind of Luke, as he likes to do, I think throwing us just a bit of a curveball in the course of the narrative. So, they're traveling, they're going to a place, we don't know exactly where Emmaus was, but it's, we're told it's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking uh, to each other. They, they were speaking to each other uh, on uh, the journey. They were talking about what had happened there in their midst, what they had observed and what they had been talking about with other uh, believers. And so while they were doing this, verse 15, Jesus drew near. In other words, there was probably uh, maybe even somewhat of an entourage. I mean, it's a few days after Passover. So maybe it is. They're just part of the other pilgrims leaving town. And uh, Jesus is just kind of working his way along and joins them. Now again, who am I? But I think I might have given them a little Damascus action. You know, little knock them to their knees appearance. But Jesus, in a very subtle way, chooses to work in, to slip in among them and begin to listen uh, to uh, their discussion, and he, and he inquires as to what they are talking about. Jesus, the, the master questioner. And, and here's the thing. I've told you before. You honor me when you ask me a question. Okay? I, I, that means I, I'd like an answer. And I think maybe you can give me uh, an answer. And there's a sense where you should be honored when I ask you a question. How are you doing? means I care about what's going on in your life. So questions are absolutely essential uh, to, to good communication. And, and Jesus was the master questioner because he wanted them to articulate. And when you articulate, that means you, you're thinking about what it is that's going on in your mind. I want you to put it out there for me. It's really what we call in certain evangelistic programs, it's a diagnostic question. I want, I want to see where you are spiritually. 
And so Jesus uh, asked them, and we're told that they are kept from recognizing him, which seems to be a reoccurring concept in the resurrection, that, that Jesus only makes himself known as he chooses to do so. And it, it honestly reminds me of the reality that continues to this day. Jesus makes himself known to those that he chooses. Even, even with the, the accuracy of the account of the Gospels and all of the information we have and all the arguments that I could put forward that would absolutely be a slam dunk argument that proves this is all true. Even with all that, if God through His Spirit does not open your heart, your mind, your eyes, impact your will, all of these things, you will, pursue, you will find an excuse to deny the truth. Either objectively it didn't really happen, or more subjectively, well, I know that happened, but doesn't really apply to me. His authority does not extend to my life. He's not going to stand as my judge one day. Well, no matter what you think, let me tell you, let me cue you in. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. And you will submit. As I say, in this life, you have a choice whether to submit willingly. But one day, you will acknowledge him as Lord. Uh, you may grit your teeth when you do it. But you'll do it. As he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You worker of iniquity. And so, Jesus inquires about their conversation. And, and, and Luke notes their sad countenance. Jesus could see and probably had already overheard their distress, their dismay, maybe even their disgruntlement. What were we thinking? Why did we leave our homes? What is going on here? But Jesus could, I think Luke tells us, about the sadness of their countenance to remind us. And how many times have you heard this? We need to see each other. We need to look one another in each other's faces. Because our faces tell an awful lot. You take and you read what's on a person's face, and then you ask the question, and you listen to what they say, and you have communication that is absolutely essential. So you staying out of the insane asylum, first of all. Yeah. So that you won't go slap bat crazy. And the second thing, so that we may live in accountability and encouragement with each other for the good of one another, for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God. So Jesus noted their countenance. And that's absolutely important. Let me, I want to read a piece. In my studies this week, I ran across this by J.C. Ryle, uh, kind of a, an older uh, commentator from the pastor commentator in the 19th century. And while this is a, a fairly substantial piece, there's a, it's part of a much larger piece, and I'm going to ask Drew tomorrow to send the whole thing out. I thought it was really good. I thought it was really good. So I would encourage you to, 
to, to read it. But Ryle says this, conference on spiritual subjects, conference just means talking about, okay? It's kind of what we do when, when I say, would y'all please go home? And I walk back through the building, there's 40 of you running around in here talking. Well, y'all are conferencing, okay? It's a big fancy word for talking, but not just talking about anything. Conference on spiritual subjects is a most important means of grace. We talk a lot around here about means of grace, Lord's Supper, baptism, the Word of God. It is a means, it is an avenue, it is an activity by which you come to experience in a greater way to encounter the resurrected Lord. So speaking to one another about the truth of the Word of God is a means of God's grace. And I encourage you to do so. As iron sharpens iron, so does exchange of thoughts with brethren sharpen a believer's soul you know even when you disagree with me and, and you're wrong when you do but even when you disagree with me we sharpen one another because this makes me know i'm more right okay about about these things come on guys grin just a little okay all right it brings down a special blessing on all who make practice of it the striking words of Malachi were meant for the church in every age. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. What do we ourselves know of spiritual conversation with other Christians? Perhaps we read our Bibles and pray in private and use public means of grace. It is all well, very well. But if we stop short here, then we neglect a great privilege and have yet much to learn. We ought to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We ought to encourage and build one another, Hebrews 10.24. We have no time for spiritual conversation. Let us think again. The quantity of time wasted on frivolous, trifling, and unprofitable talk is fearfully great. Do we find nothing to say on spiritual subjects? Do we feel tongue-tied and speechless on the things of Christ? Surely, if this is the case, then there must be something wrong within. A heart right in the sight of God will generally find words to speak about eternal realities. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Let us learn the lesson from the two travelers to Emmaus. Let us speak of Jesus when we're sitting in our houses and we're walking in the way and whenever we can find a disciple to speak to. If we believe we are journeying to heaven where Christ will be the central object of every mind, let us begin to learn the conduct of heaven while we're yet upon earth. So doing, we shall often have one with us whom our eyes will not see, but one who will make our hearts burn within us by blessing the conversation wow that's good that's good so jesus joins in their con their conversation joins in the journey and so we see there he asked about it evidently the question stopped the journey and in verse 18 we see one named cleopas one of the strangers on the journey, he answers Jesus' question. He asks, in response to Jesus' question, what are you talking about? 
Cleopas asks, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, I know you remember this from last week. But here's another biblical example of sarcasm. Of Jesus himself saying, or Cleopas himself saying, don't you, everybody knows this, you should know this. Being kind of sarcastic in response. Well, everybody knows but you, fella. Huh, how'd you miss it? Wonder how he felt about that question when he realized who he was talking to. So, they answer Jesus' question with a question, and then they give a, an explanation beginning in verse 19. They, they speak to Jesus, and they describe the situation as it occurred in Jerusalem as concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and uh, word before God and people, on, on and on it goes. One commentator calls that the gospel according to Cleopas. And what a defective gospel it is. It's not a gospel. It's not good news. If, if this is all you got to say about Jesus, now why he says it's true, it is inadequate because it is incomplete. They, they knew quite a bit actually at this point. But they couldn't put it all together. They had to have the accurate explanation accompanied with the illumination of God's Holy Spirit to help them uh, make sense of it. In fact, what they, there, there's a, a saying that goes something like this, that you can condemn someone with faint praise. That, that if someone deserves great accolades, and, but yet you condemn them by some mild form of praise. If this is all you got about for Jesus, you're actually not honoring Him. Because this is incomplete. May be accurate. He, he was a prophet. He was mighty. I mean, He did things that no one uh, could, have account, could, could account for. No one could explain it. They got it right. The chief priest conspired to put Him to death. They, they understood that. But here's the tragedy. Look at verse 21. But, okay, Jesus was great. That sounds good, but strong contrast. We had hoped. What a tragedy. That is an imperfect Greek verb. There was a time in which we were hoping, we were believing, but now... At best, we're sorting things out. At best, we're trying to figure out. We have some evidence, but we just simply don't know. But we had, maybe that describes some of you here. Well, I had at one time, if all your testimony is, I had one time, I did one time, and you don't have anything to say about what God is doing in your heart, in your life, in your mind, right now. You need to examine yourself. 
You need to examine yourself to see if indeed you are of the faith. And so they had hoped. And the women had come back, verse 22, and told them their story, that amazing story that the tomb was empty, the truth that the tomb was empty. They, they go, they find the stone rolled back, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And notice how in verse 23, they're just... What did they see? Did they see a vision of angels? There's a big difference between seeing a vision of angels and seeing angels. So what does that make me think? Well, these women got up early. Something happened. Vision, voices. No. What's going on here? Vision of angels. Some went to the tomb. We know it was Peter and John. But they did not see the Lord Jesus. What in the world is going on? What, what, does, what does an empty tomb mean? Okay? The meaning, just because the tomb is empty, isn't the whole story. It's, the, it's evidence. It, it, it's reality but we need to understand what an empty tomb actually means. And so Jesus, verse 25, He addresses their concerns. Notice what He begins with. O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. That's, I don't know how mild of a rebuke that is. I guess to be politically correct all the commentators say that's a bit of a mild rebuke but it's pretty 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 strong rebuke there say it another way hey guys you should have known better you should have been paying attention and so they have one of the greatest privileges accorded to anyone in scripture not just walking with Jesus which would have been great But Jesus, the central figure in the Old Testament, uh, the, the one who inspired the Old Testament, the one the Old Testament is about, says, I'm going to take time to explain what all that means. I, you know, you've heard me say uh, that when I took my Hebrew exegesis course at Beeson, I had the privilege of the professor being a, a man by the name of Kenneth Matthews, who had just finished, Two volumes on the book of Genesis. Now, that, I'm not, I didn't, now notice I, I didn't say it. He didn't write the book of Genesis. I said he wrote a, book, a commentary. But it was all fresh and real and powerful and just a joy to go in there every day to hear a real expert about all the events of Genesis. What well, was such a privilege. And so can you imagine the one who didn't speak like the scribes and the Pharisees he spoke like he knew what he was talking about because he's talking about himself. He spoke as one who had authority. He spoke as one who when he told the demons to come out, they came out. When he told one to take up your mat and walk because your sins were forgiven, he got up and walked because his sins were forgiven. He's, called, he's the one that said when the storm be still, the storm was still. 
Yeah. That was the one that was teaching them. Yeah. And so, he asked them the question, well, was it not necessary? Again, guys, you're good Jew, you're good Jew boys. You've been hearing this stuff your whole life. What's the deal? You have heard the prophecy of the Messiah since you were knee-high to a grasshopper. Wasn't it necessary? Didn't you know that? Can't you read your Bible? And so, he's got his, their attention. And so, he takes the time to begin, verse 27, with Moses and the prophets. And he interpreted to them all the Scripture, the things concerning himself. Remember, he indicted the Pharisees, John 5, 39. Now, you think by searching the Scriptures that in them you will find eternal life, but you do not realize in your search, you don't realize it's those very Scriptures that you think you have mastered. See, it's one thing to master the Scripture. It's another thing for the Scripture to master you. Far different concept. So you, you don't realize that it is those Scriptures that you claim to be so knowledgeable about that actually point out, highlights to I am. And so what did he tell them? Let me, I'm gonna, I, we don't know exactly. But let me suggest some things. Because as I've said, Christ is the point of the Bible. Okay? That all of the Scriptures focuses on the reality of the incarnate second person of the Trinity. So in the Old Testament, you have what we call the meta-narrative, really the whole Bible. But... You have the beginning of creation, then rebellion, then redemption, and then consummation. All of that is about the Lord Jesus Christ because He is the creator and the sustainer and the purpose for all things. And so He began to explain. And just as, as an aside, since He began with creation, it reminded me, there's a book, I've never read it. Everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Let me tell you something. Everything you need to know about life, if you'll read Genesis 126, 127, 128, I won't say you'll know everything. You might need to read Genesis 3 as well. But about 98% of what you need to know about how to do well in life is in three verses in the Old Testament. Okay? Just, so, the big picture points to Jesus. The, the very distinctives of the, the law and the prophets that, that Jesus is this truth of the law incarnate. He is the perfect prophet that points to the realities of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. He suffers the penalty of the law for us. He calls for repentance. He is the wise and perfectly righteous judge. The wisdom literature points to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is wisdom incarnate. He is the Wisdom of God. He is the one the psalmist describes as, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. He is the one who was hated without cause. He is the Holy One who is David's Lord that would not see decay. He is the Good Shepherd. The entirety of the historical narrative, of the whole, the whole story, points to the Lord Jesus Christ from creation through the rebellion of Adam and the fact that Jesus Christ is the second 
Adam, he is the one that comes to reverse the calamity ushered in by the rebellion of Adam. The whole story points to the necessity of a Savior. The history of the Old Testament points out the repercussions of sin and rebellion and how God intervenes to save a people. God judged the murderous Cain, but raised up a godly seed through Seth. God judged the world through a flood, but saved a remnant through the work of Noah. God judged post-Babel world, but promised a blessing to Abraham and through his seed. God saved Israel first through Joseph, then later Moses, who was a servant, redeemer, deliverer pointing to our ultimate salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. God gave Israel a king to prove the imperfections of earthly kings, that there needed to be one who was ultimately righteous and judged and just. God judged a rebellious nation, showing His seriousness regarding sin, but also saving a remnant. Fifth thing pictures, that pictures Christ in the Old Testament. Christ is pictured in the various types and symbols. He is the tree of life in the garden. He is the animal slain to cover Adam and Eve's guilt and shame. He is the true ark that one must enter to be delivered from judgment. He is the ram at Abraham's altar. He is the I am of the burning bush. He is the bread come down from heaven. And here's a new one that I learned last week. Some of that spiritual conversation. One of our fine young men met me out in the uh, foyer and kind of gave me, well, that was incredibly adequate. An average, you know, a, a real, a real encouragement to, you know, and then he began to tell me about Aaron's budding staff and how that pointed forward to the resurrection. Now, y'all, y'all know I have post-sermon fried brain, so I'm just like, you know, just, and it takes, and I go, wow, I have never heard that. I have never made that connection. First thing Monday morning, I, walk, I come in the door and walk in Drew's office. I said, have you ever heard this before? I said, Tim Dumas was telling me this. I said, I'm, I'm like, wow, spiritual conversation, iron sharpening iron, means of grace. Wow, just in conversation as we depart the building. But the budded staff points forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the brazen serpent raised up in the wilderness. He is the warrior king who slayed Goliath. He is the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah's vision in the temple. Sixth thing, Christ is foreshadowed and symbolized in the sacrificial system. He is our Passover lamb who has delivered us from our sin and bondage, not to Egypt, but to sin. And so, He is the effective sacrifice represented in the Day of Atonement in both the, the, the uh, sacrifice on the altar and in the scapegoat. He is the perfect and ultimate and consummate high priest who offers the perfect and acceptable sacrifice that finally atones for sin. He is the high priest who is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. He is anticipated in every piece of furniture and every ritual of the old old covenant economy. And Jesus is is, is the promised one 
in the word of the prophet. He is the serpent crushing seed of the woman. He is the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the prophet like unto Moses. He is the star out of Jacob, of Balaam's prophecy. He is David's promised son. He is the psalmist despised and scorned. He is the son and Lord who won't suffer corruption. He is the virgin born king of Isaiah. He's Isaiah's suffering servant. He is David's righteous branch in Jeremiah. He's Daniel's anointed one. And he is Micah's king born in Bethlehem. And I've just scratched the surface. But you all want to go to lunch one day. So. But yeah. The one who inspired all of that to be written about him is telling these guys, you should have seen this. I put it in there. You should have known. But because I'm good and gracious. Because like so many of us, they missed the obvious. Husbands, I'm speaking to you. Aren't we oblivious too much of the time? And so, verse 28, Jesus agrees to dine with them. They're traveling. They get to Emmaus. And I, I not, again, don't be some, some stinking liberal trying to find something. It would have been kind of normative for Jesus to act like he was going on. They invite him in. In fact, the they insist, really, is the language of verse 29. They, 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 and, and again, because what? Because the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the Son of God are so working in their hearts that they cannot, they, they cannot let Him go. They are gripped by what they have heard and what they have experienced. And so He stayed. And... They're continuing to talk. He stays with them and they begin to eat their evening meal. Now one of the strange things about the passage is Jesus evidently functions as the host within the home. The normal job of the host was to break the bread. Now I don't think this was a communion service, a Lord's Supper service or anything like that, but I think, I think we can kind of make some casual connections maybe. Uh, uh, but, and, and quite possibly, I don't know that this is the case, Jesus is speaking. They're ready to uh, enter into the, to the symbol of fellowship, a meal, okay? Jesus breaks the bread and begins. And what do they see? Oh, my goodness. He is recognized possibly by the scars that demonstrate, that illustrate and remind us this is how we were saved. And again, one of the strange things about these stories, then he disappears. Then he disappears from the sun. I mean, that just, you talk about a cliffhanger, but he disappears from their sight. Notice that, verse 31, and their eyes were opened. They didn't open their eyes. Let me tell you, folks, if you don't remember anything else today, if you see Jesus, it's because he opened your eyes. You better get that straight. Too, too many people, those, well, here's what I did. Yeah, well, how, how did you come to know Christ? Well, I, 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 I. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. He, he, he. Or you would still not see the resurrected Lord. And so, they, they see him, and, and, and then they, they look at each other, and they go, wow. What, what, what were we thinking? That, 
that our hearts were burning as we heard this truth. That, That we were able to put together the testimony and the experience and the realities of the encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, both before His death and after His death. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God brought it to bear upon their lives. And they go, Aha! Now, why did he disappear at that very moment? I think I don't know, but I'm going to suggest it's because the Spirit of God and the Word of God are always sufficient to reveal the Son of God. He does not need to come stand in our presence physically for us to know Him. So, what do we have here? A couple of final thoughts. First, it is redemptive history. This is what happened. It, it is truth. It is the unique, unimpeachable testimony to the way God has worked and the way God continues to work. We, we know Jesus, we experience, experience Him through the power of His Word. The testimony is sufficient. We, we, we come to understand Him in both Baptism and the Lord's Supper. But those both must be defined and informed by the Word of God. And we must be given understanding by the very Spirit of God. That all of these things, we once again, just as those Emmaus travels, travelers did not get it, if God doesn't work, even though the resurrection and all associated with it is true, we won't get it. Until what? Until our eyes are opened. And when our eyes are opened, when we hear the testimony, our hearts, our hearts burn within us. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us, the accurate testimony to uh, your accomplishment upon the cross. I pray that your Spirit would so work in us as we prepare to receive uh, this, your Lord, our Lord, your Supper. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.